so grateful for our worship team. I appreciate the work that they do week in and week out. They're a blessing to us. And I so appreciate what Kevin is doing to try to give us texts and tunes that are singable and memorable and rich with God's truth. We may not sing the exact lines of Scripture, but we always want to be singing God's truth. And I'm grateful for uh, the, the leadership and service that Kevin and the team give us in accomplishing that week in and week out. I want you to think for just a moment today about the most desperate moment of your life. When have you felt so desperate that you made a call, maybe a 911 call? Maybe you reached out to a friend or family member? It could have even been some kind of authority figure who you thought would have an answer for you because you had none. Some of your minds went to very serious situations. Some of your minds might actually be wandering down a path where you're almost smiling to yourself saying, you know, I was desperate, but it's kind of funny how that whole thing turned out. Some of you have been desperate as parents. Uh, I was thinking back to uh, an earlier year, we have four children, and some of you have met all of them because they've all at least been out to visit, but none of them are here today, so I can talk a little more freely about them. <laughs> Kristen made a, a few desperate phone calls uh, after our second was born, and while Kate was a baby, Luke was three. And he was never unkind to her. He was actually always a sweet brother, and uh, seemed to look out for her, or at least, you know, not make life hard for her, but he just declared war on Kristen. And perhaps it's because, you know, it was just the two of them, and suddenly there's this new person in the household, and after a while it's obvious she's not going back to where she came from. <laughs> Who knows what gave rise to this thing, but he became a hellion. And that's not an exaggeration. He was awful. And to her credit, she was doing all the things that, you know, we thought were biblically um, appropriate. You know, you start asking other people for wisdom, and they give you strategies, and you look at families that you respect whose children seem to have grown up and become, you know, rather well-adjusted and and, uh, but there are those moments where you just run out of answers, and so it was not uncommon for a little season of time where I would get a phone call, sometimes middle, typically middle of the day, and she would say, Danny, I do not know what to do with him. Can you please come home? Well, you do that a few times, and I had the flexibility, and I only worked about a mile and a quarter from, you know, our home, so I could jump in the car frequently and come home, but you also reach a point where you're like, I we both knew. I couldn't do that every day. We just had to figure this thing out. And, and moms, sorry, I don't know what it is. Uh, it's frustrating to you because you're like, I'm the one who does, you know, 90% of the work. And, and my kids treat me this way. Dad walks in the house and he's like hero or God or, you know, whatever. It's like suddenly the, the three-year-old snaps into, into shape and he, you know, seems really obedient and compliant all of a sudden, whereas before he's not. I can't fully explain that. I don't have answers on that, but we're thankful that it does work that way. <laughs> Gives you a little bit of hope. But there was that period of time where, you know, even as mom and dad, you just become desperate. 
What, what are we going to do? Is there an end to this war? Uh, and your mind begins to go, okay, he's three, but what happens if he's still this way when he's six or 16 or 36? And some of you say, I know what that is. Some of you may even say, I'm still there as a parent or I'm there as a grandparent. That sense of desperation, though, whatever your story might be, gives us the capacity to relate a little bit to another desperate mother who comes to Jesus. I should tell you the end of the story. If you met Luke today, and some of you have met him, uh, and, and, and some who have met him would say, I cannot believe that that's the guy you said was that terrible as a three-year-old. It is God's grace, and I'm not... I'm not trying to be funny or coy about that. God, God did some really special things, turned the corner, and thankfully he stopped hitting Kristen and spitting at her and screaming at her. I mean, it, it was really, really bad. And he's a little embarrassed even when we talk about some of that now, as he should be. Uh, <laughs> so God gives grace. And I want to finish that story, because if I didn't, some of you afterwards would be like, I couldn't hear another word you said, because you never told us how it turned out. But whether you've been in a situation like that as a parent or not, every one of us knows that feeling of desperation where you say, I have no answers, I have no resources, there's something in front of me that is so overwhelming that I feel like it will be the end of my life, maybe literally, uh, but if not literally, the end of my life as I know it, will there ever be a moment of comfort or ease uh, or sanity again? I think you begin to understand some of what this mother who is approaching Jesus in Mark 7 must be experiencing and feeling. And so as we enter the story today, we're going to pray, first of all, and ask for God's help, but I want you to just enter into what this woman must have been experiencing and let Mark, as he tells the story and summarizes it just in, in one brief paragraph, but puts Jesus at the forefront with a view that we might not only learn about Jesus, but feel this personal connection to him and even experience our need for him. So let's pray. Father, we readily admit that we are more desperate than we might even want to acknowledge at this moment. And though we may have passed out of those really deep seasons of desperation, every one of us here knows what it is uh, to feel the, the exposure and fear and doubt and turmoil in those moments of life where we say, I have no answers and there must be a powerful change or else. And there are some here this morning who are desperate. They may not even have a sense that they are desperate for Jesus Christ in the way that this dear woman was desperate for him as the miracle-working Savior. But would you reveal to them that in the same way that you were both powerful and compassionate for that woman, you are powerful and compassionate toward them, toward us. So Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to us today. Make this living word come to life in us and change us by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 24 through verse 30 today. Mark 7, 24 to 30. You follow along as I read this portion of Mark's Gospel. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Just to catch you up to speed, this is Jesus. He's had a very pointed confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes, some or all of whom had come from Jerusalem, uh, to really accuse him of not following the tradition of the elders. And so Jesus has been teaching his disciples and the other hearers the nature of true defilement. And he's just made the point that what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So he's been in Israel ministering in those towns and villages. And he's been, for two chapters now, actually seeking a, a moment of rest with his disciples. And so now it appears he's got to make a trip about 20 miles out of the region of Galilee. And so that's what it means when Mark says he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her, and he said to her, Let the children be, first, be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let me tell you a few things about the Syrophoenician region, first of all, because Mark says that Jesus moves uh, from the, the region of, of Galilee to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Those are two Gentile towns. He is actually outside the border of Israel. So he's left the country, as it were. It was not only a Gentile region, but a Hellenistic region. That is, it was controlled uh, by the, the Greek culture, uh, more broadly speaking. And Tyre is a city that Christ had actually cited in other Gospels as a heathen city. And when he, he brought up Tyre as an example of a city that would actually bear less responsibility in the great day of judgment than those Galilean towns where he was ministering because of his constant and personal witness in those towns. It actually raised the level of accountability. And so Tyre was one of the cities that he said it will be, it will be easier for them in the day of judgment. They'll still fall under God's condemnation and wrath, but it will be more bearable for them in those days because they haven't had the measure of, of truth and gospel witness that you have. And Sidon was also a town well-known for its temple to a particular god, Eshmun. And interestingly enough, I know Mark doesn't develop this, but Eshmun is the god of healing. I just file that thing away. The god of healing, a Greek god. And it's thus significant that it was in this region of Tyre and Sidon that Christ comes 
and is asked to heal this woman's daughter of demon possession. Now, Eshmun was identified with another Greek god of medical art, and you've sometimes seen that medical symbol, the serpent wrapped around the pole. That is tied into this Greek god, uh, Asclepius. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I think sometimes these little nuances of, of cultural history can be really helpful for us. So it is from the belief, as one author writes, in the healing power of Eshmun and Asclepius and the snake that we get the sign of the medical profession that is now used worldwide. So, so these two regions, Tyre and Sidon, are, are strongholds, not just of Hellenistic culture, but of also a form of worship that included a temple to this particular god of healing. And that's the very, the, the very country that Jesus enters. Now, it does seem, based on the, the flow of Mark's gospel to this point, that Jesus is seeking rest, and thus even inserts that little line, he did not want anyone to know that he was there. I'd love to know, who, is, who owns this house? Was it a friend? You know, was it an Airbnb kind of situation where somebody just recommended and said, you know, there's this really great place. You need to get out of town for a while and you can find some quiet place. We don't have any of those details other than the fact that Jesus didn't want anyone to know. But he's been working miracles all over the region. And back in chapter 3, at one of those moments of, of great ministry and miracle working, there were people from Tyre and Sidon who were in that vicinity, so obviously word has spread, and Mark says he could not be hidden. And we're grateful for this. And so that brings us to verse 25, and the Syrophoenician woman. Now notice several things about her, if you will, please. First of all, her overwhelming need. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. Now that's more than just a serious illness. The powers of darkness have descended upon this little one. And as a parent, you can only imagine the kind of fear that gripped her heart on a daily basis. There are no details given here in this particular account, but if you read ahead to Mark 9, you would see another parent who has a son, in that case, whose child is oppressed, if not possessed, by a demon. And the description that's given there is that the, the demon caused that child to go into violent convul convulsions, to foam at the mouth, and would often fling the child into the fire, trying to destroy the child. Well, if you're living with that kind of thing day after day, you become a parent who's just like crazy with desperation. So it's really hard to understand fully, but we know enough about the nature of this particular need to say this is a woman who is overwhelmed in that need. A second thing that strikes us as we read this account, Mark says that she came and fell down at his feet. Matthew, as he records this story, says that she knelt before him and uses a word that describes her putting her face to the ground under his feet, as it were. Clearly, this is a, a posture of humility. So it's, she's not only a woman of overwhelming need, but she's a woman of, of humble posture, shows deep respect, and, and that deep respect flows for him because of what she flows toward him because of what she's heard, but there's also this profound sorrow in her heart because of what she experiences. But now look at verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now pause there for a moment, and, and don't forget what has just preceded this. The religious power brokers, Pharisees and scribes, have come from Jerusalem. They've been attacking Jesus and his disciples because they don't live by the elders' 
tradition that have been handed down. They don't wash their hands uh, to, to rid themselves of that ceremony of defilement they might have picked up in the marketplace before they eat their food. All kinds of things that they don't observe. And one of the criticisms that has been leveled at Jesus throughout that, that, that these scribes, these Pharisees, other religious leaders have been seeking to establish is that he's not, he's not actually a real Jewish rabbi. A real Jewish rabbi would never have interaction with a Gentile woman who's from this region. That's why one author actually describes those terms, a Gentile, a Gentile woman, Syrophoenician by birth, as notorious credentials. Notorious credentials. Now think about it from her perspective. Did she have any say-so as to who her parents were? She didn't ask to be born a Syrophoenician. Did she have any control over her gender? No, that's coded into DNA. She is what she is and where she is by the choices of others. And the ultimate choice is the sovereign God who created her and put her right there at that time. Yet there's a culture that has developed that looks at her and says, wrong gender, inferior race, standing outside of the religious system, you are an unclean person. And that's been a theme that Mark's been developing, isn't it? Now, we, when I say it in a context like this, that's, that's really offensive to us, isn't it? But can you think of one era, one age, one culture where there hasn't been that kind of discrimination and racism just kind of woven, woven into the fabric. It's human nature to create those boundaries and barriers and classes. But here's Jesus, who actually is the only true, faithful Jewish rabbi, who though he's on vacation, looking for a little rest, has all the time in the world for this desperate woman. And while to some they may be notorious credentials that would say stay away, to this Lord, to this rabbi, it means nothing. I love this about Jesus. This is one of the things that makes me hopeful when in my desperation I think, Lord, do you have time for me today? Maybe I've blown it again and I'm confessing my sin. Lord, is there any compassion left in you for me? I should know better. And I read stories like this and I think, yes, there is. Lord, I'm confused. I'm desperate. I don't know what I need to do. Could you give me some help? Here's an answer to that question. Would he? Oh, he will. So these notorious credentials, which would make any other Jewish rabbi avoid her, like the unclean thing they thought she was. These are not barriers to Jesus at all. Now look again at the text with me. She begged him to cast the demon out of her. In her overwhelming need, with a humble posture as she bows before him, even stepping through those notorious credentials, if you will. She begs him. 
And this text, along with Matthew's description uh, of her crying out, is the term that he uses, indicates to us both urgency and repetition. As a matter of fact, when Matthew tells the story, he inserts the, the little word of the disciples who are actually saying to Jesus, send her away, for she is crying out after us. So there, it seems like at least for a time before she came and knelt, she might have been following them and, and crying repeatedly, repeatedly. And you know, again, humanly speaking, we sympathize with the disciples a little bit, especially if they're saying, finally, we can be on vacation for a little time. But Jesus is more intent on ministering to this lady than he is getting that little time of rest. So she is apparently following them, crying out over and over, persistently seeking the attention and the intervention of Christ. The terminology that Mark uses here for begging is used in other places to describe prayer. Jesus himself uses this terminology when it, in John 17, verse 9, his prayer is recorded to the Father, I am praying for them. I am not praying or begging for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And I pause and, and think, this is a great place for us to say, do we pray and seek after God with this kind of urgency and persistence? Almost to the point, at least from the disciples' perspective, of making, making ourselves obnoxious. Now, God never thinks of you as obnoxious when you persistently and urgently bring your request to him. Don't give up. And he's not, at the same time, he's not checking, you know, all the prayer boxes to say, well, if you had prayed for 19 days straight instead of 18 days straight, I might have done something. No, there are stories like this all through the scriptures, though, that the Lord seems to encourage us to pray, not only with a sense of urgency, but persistently. So that's a little bit about this woman. Now look at verse 27, because this is surprising, and we have to pay attention here, or else we will think that Jesus is like every other Jewish rabbi, at least initially. So with those notorious credentials and this desperation and this humility and this persistence and urgency, she comes and she begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I think when most of us read that, we, we almost feel like initially he did this to her, push her away, right? And I'll readily admit, there, those words were a little bit of a stop, uh, a, a kind of a barrier. But there's something that we've seen Jesus do prior, and this is what will help us make sense of all of this. Look at the three key words in his statement. The children... <laughs> Bread and dogs. I'm going to go in reverse order because most of us are hung up on the dog term. Is he calling her a dog? Is he no more mature than junior high boys who are just mean to some of their classmates? Because even in our culture, that term is sometimes used in that way, isn't it? Well, no, that's not what Jesus is doing. It could be that culturally speaking, he, he is referring to her from a Jewish perspective into the Gentile perspective because there was much teaching and practice in those days where, where Jewish people would commonly refer to Gentiles as dogs, and they meant it in a very pejorative sense. They wanted to establish the racial differences. 
well, I struggle with that, and there's more that could be said, and if, if you want a little additional information, I can give you some scripture references and other things that might fill that out a little bit. But I, I looked at that this week, and I thought, I, I don't think that's consistent for Jesus to confront the Pharisees and scribes in the preceding story about hand-washing and making the point that there's no unclean food and then turn around and treat this Gentile woman as if she is unclean by calling her a dog. So what is he doing? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Last night, Kristen was preparing dinner for friends who are visiting with us. Uh, Doug and his three sons have have come in for a few days, and we enjoyed some time out in the woods uh, the last three days. So our good friends were staying with us, and and she prepared a a supper for us. And um, there was a bowl where she had prepared some of that shredded beef for the French dip sandwiches that we were going to have. And in that bowl, there were still a a few pieces of beef. And I said, hey, could I, you know, take this bowl and just let Bristol, our German shepherd, you know, clean up the remnants. She would really like this. And Kristen said, I think there's some spices in there that might, you know, be a little too much for her, so let's not do that tonight. And so Bristol didn't get the good stuff. And besides, we were almost ready to eat, and, you know, no one wanted to fool with a family pet in that moment. Well, the term for dogs that's used in this passage does not refer to the wild dogs, the street dogs. It actually refers to little dogs. In some contexts, it would even be puppies. These are pets. And what Jesus is doing, one author notes, is alluding to a current domestic scene, particularly in a Hellenistic household. This is a Syrophoenician woman, a Hellenistic woman, if you will. The table is set and the family has gathered. It is inappropriate to interrupt the meal and allow the household dogs to carry off the children's bread. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's not hurling an insult at her. I think he's actually speaking in another parable. A parable that she would totally get in her Hellenistic concept. And sure, if you back through the parable now, we started with dogs, so they they would represent a Hellenistic woman like her at this particular point, and the bread Jesus speaks of would be his word, which he's continued to minister uh, throughout the the region, and the children would be the children of God, Israelites, uh, if you will, very specifically. And if you look again at the text, you will see that that Jesus is using this this parable, first of all, to establish the priority of his mission. Notice the word. First, to the children. He's not saying, you're a dog and you'll never get bread. He's actually saying there's a a proper sequence for this. The gospel is first to the Jew. Paul even mentions this in Romans 1.16 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So Jesus is doing nothing more than using a parable to establish the priority of his mission. Here's a second thought, though. He is, in fact, showing the generosity of his mission, the expanse of it. Yes, he identifies that these children will be fed first, but that implies that there will be those who are fed second. Now, I want you to look at the word fed for a moment. 
And, and again, let's throw this story in its context. Have you noticed that Mark 7, amazingly, comes between Mark 6 and Mark 8? It's just like math class. 6, 7, 8. And don't let your mind go to those cornball jokes of why, which number is afraid of the other, right? Now, back in chapter 6, what was the big miracle that Jesus performed? He fed how many people? 5,000. And they were primarily Jews, right? I know we haven't gotten to chapter 8, but some of you have read ahead, and you know the story well. He's actually going to feed how many more thousand? Four. And those will be primarily Gentile people. And the term that's used in both of those accounts for feeding people is that he feeds them in a way where they're all satisfied. And that's actually a term that, that an English word that we use to translate those very thoughts. Do you know it's the same word here that Jesus is using when he says the children will be, will be first satisfied. First to be satisfied. But even there, the implication is, but others are also going to be satisfied. I don't want you to miss that because when Jesus comes to meet your need, he, he's not tossing crumbs off the table to use some of the terminology out of the story. He comes with the intent of meeting your need and then some. It's in his nature to be generous, to be benevolent, to be full of compassion, full of mercy, full of grace. He's not interested in just, you know, kind of stingily letting a few crumbs slide off the table for you as you grovel under the table like a dog. That's a, that's a misunderstanding of this parable. This is the Savior who satisfies. So there's a priority of mission here, but there is clearly a generosity of mission that's coming into view. Now look at verse 28, because this is marvelous. This woman gets it. And again, in context, remember how Jesus had given that parable coming out of the conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he, and he shares the teaching with the public, and then the disciples move into private, and, and they're the ones who are going, hey, can you explain that to us? They're continually struggling to understand the parables. But guess who the first one in Mark's gospel is to get the parable? It's not the Jewish boys who are following him along. It's the Gentile woman. Do you see again how Jesus just, he's just continually busting up these cultural paradigms that we set up. I think this is a really sweet moment. Look at verse 28 now. She answered him, yes, Lord. Yes, that is, she respectfully acknowledges his priorities. I do not disagree with you, Lord. Your first priority is to the children or the Jews. And whether or not she knew passages like Exodus 4.22 that speak of Israel as God's firstborn, we cannot know. But certainly she humbly gives Jesus the right to dispense the bread of his ministry to whomever he chooses. So she, in the first place, respectfully acknowledges his priorities. Number two, she humbly acknowledges his authority. She calls him Lord, Master. It's translated in other places with the word owner. And in the New Testament, it is sometimes equivalent to the Old Testament title for God, Yahweh. So this is significant. This is more than just saying to him, sir, yes, sir. She says, yes, Lord. She acknowledges his authority. And number three, she confidently acknowledges his abundant provision. 
She acknowledges and runs with his statement that the children should be fed or satisfied first, but then she extends it as an expression of her confident belief that Jesus is generously supplied in both power and mercy, and she says these marvelous words, yet even the dogs, that is, even the family pets under the table, eat the children's crumbs. You think about what happens at most tables where children are present, and when they reach that point that they are full, what had the adults better do? Move the plates, move the trays. Because there's going to be a point where the children are satisfied and no more is going in the mouth. But it might go to the floor, it might go across the table at brother or sister, it might go up in the air. All kinds of things happen. And it's as if this lady, who is a mother, who knows what her experiences were, but she knows what happens at a table when children are satisfied. There's hope for the family pets. And you know, for her, for her position of desperation, and from what she's heard about Jesus and his power, she knows that merely a scrap, a crumb, from his table will have all the power that she is in need of. She's not asking the Lord to take away food from anyone else, but rather she is acknowledging that his table is so generously provided for that even the household pets who feed under his table get what they need. As I looked at this over the last couple of days, I thought of the woman with the hemorrhage that we just studied several weeks ago. There's a similarity between these two because that woman was saying to herself what? If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I don't even have to touch him. Just the hem of his garment. And there's a parallel thought to me that this lady is acknowledging, if I can just have a crumb, I'm not asking for the whole loaf of bread. Just a crumb from you would be enough. And you know what? Both those ladies are right. Just a little touch from Jesus is transformational. And there's more healing power in the hem of this Lord's garment than in all the pharmacies of Israel. We, we saw that lady, the testimony was she'd spent all that she had. And again, casting this back in its context, that this woman lives in a region where there's a massive temple to Eshmun and Asclepius. He's the god of healing, supposedly. And who knows what she may have done to try to seek deliverance for her child. If she's like any other mom, she's probably tried all kinds of things to this particular point. But I'm certain that Jesus enters this region seeking more than just to have a little vacation time, but to establish his sovereign lordship over the false gods of regions like Tyre and Sidon, to bring hope to a woman who is desperate for her daughter to be delivered. And she knows the generosity with which he has healed and delivered and supplied and fed the thousands who have come to him. And she knows that there is more healing and forgiving and rescuing and saving power in just a crumb that falls from his table than she would ever find in all the temples of Syrophoenicia or from all the prophets and religious leaders who were making their livings on the backs of people just like her. She knows that Jesus is her only hope.
And so he is for us. And we sometimes even say, as the scriptures teach us, there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. There's more forgiveness in God than there is iniquity in you. There's more mercy in God today than there is misery in you. It's all there. Come to him. Just come to him. And so I ask here, as we come close to the end of this story, how do you come to Jesus? Do you come demanding your rights with a sense of entitlement or with a profound sense of humility? How differently this story might have read if she had misunderstood or misinterpreted the words of Jesus and said, are you calling me a dog? Well, I'll go to the temple of Eshmoon. Maybe someone there is willing to help me today. And if she had let her pride take over or her sense of entitlement take over, the story would have ended very differently. But she knows that this is the one who has the power to heal her. It is the one before whom she should bow. It is the one to whom she should cry. Some of you are still trying to just essentially rescue yourselves. You don't have the power. You really don't have the resources. And I think how much blessing we forfeit because in our pride and even our own lustful desires, we come to Christ and we make demands upon him. And even in our prayers, as James 4 verse 3 says, we ask and do not receive because we ask wrongly to spend it on our own passions or lusts. We'll go back to Mark 7 and look at verses 29 and 30 here. So she answers the Lord. She gets the parable. And she gets the truth that is standing in front of her. And Jesus says to her, verse 29, For this statement you may go your way. Matthew tells us that Jesus also said to her, O woman, great is your faith. One commentator writes of our Lord and this woman at this moment, the irresistible confidence of the woman in Jesus delighted him. Her interpretation of his statement bore eloquent witness both to her humility and her simple trust in his power to confront the demonic when all human help fails. This is the faith which is alone capable of receiving miracle. She placed herself unconditionally under Jesus' lordship and received his acknowledgement and promise on the ground of this saying, Go. And so Mark records, she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone, just like Jesus said. I think it's clear that he not only delights in the woman's faith, but the testimony and record is clear, he delivers the woman's child. Oh, it's more than a crumb that falls from the Lord's table, isn't it? This is the answer that she has urgently and persistently begged for. And this is the response that will satisfy her for all the days that are to come. This is what Jesus does when desperate people come and bow before him. This is the rescue that he is offering. And I think, you know, where the paganism of Tyre was powerless, Jesus proved full of power. Where the promises of False gods like Eshmoon and Asclepius were empty and incapable. Jesus proved to be generous and compassionate and available. 
and where the enslaving powers of demons and darkness were vicious and debilitating, Jesus rescued and saved. What a great king. What a great God. What a great Savior. Would you bow your heads with me, please, for just a moment? What's your point of desperation today? For some of you, it may be a sense of desperation because of a situation. It may involve a family member, a child, spouse. But you're desperate because you know you've got no answers and no resources. Can you, in humble faith, just come to the Lord and say, oh, Jesus, here it is. Will you make my family whole? Will you bring my marriage together? Whatever that point of desperation is, would you make it known to Jesus right now, just silently? But from your heart to his, just call to him right now. Beg in the way that the Syrophoenician persistently and urgently made her need known. Some of you are desperate because you have this unshakable sense of guilt. Some days are easier than others, but if you pause long enough to think about it, and assess it, it's just there. And in recent days, you've actually had a growing sense of this guilt just beginning to dominate your soul, and and you even feel confused, frustrated, but desperate is a word that you've begun to use to describe this sense, I am guilty before God, guilty of sin. I've done things, I've said things, I've thought things, and it's bad. It may be a little different kind of situation than what the Syrophoenician woman was experiencing, but it's the very kind of situation that God stands ready to deliver you from. And if you would simply call upon him today and say, Oh God, I am a guilty sinner. Would you have mercy upon me and forgive me? Would you clean my life of this sin? Oh, he would. This is just one of many stories that show us Jesus meets real people in their real needs. He'd do it for you right now. Will you call upon him? You say, I I don't know that I'll say the right things. It's not about the right words. It's about a sincere heart. What if God is busy with someone else? Really? Just think about this story. He was not too busy for this Gentile woman. He's not too busy for you. Maybe my sin is too great. Oh, my friend, it's not. 
Jesus would meet you right where you are. And he will satisfy you as he satisfied large crowds and one woman. Great God and King, we praise you that as you entered this world and became what we are, the Lord of glory, the eternal Son of God, humbling himself and becoming for the first time a man in order that you might Make your dwelling among us. And as you made your dwelling among us, you proclaimed truth. You proclaimed forgiveness of sins and life eternal. You touched all manner of uncleanness and you healed the broken ones and cleansed and healed the lepers and healed and delivered those who were oppressed and controlled by demonic powers. There were no limits to your ministry of mercy in those days, and there are no limits to your ministry of mercy today. Please come and do all of your rescuing, saving, healing work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before Kevin and our worship team lead us in a closing song, I want you to know that if we can help you or serve you, pray with you,